1: It's Alana Schreiber, and I'm a producer on Colorado Edition. Before we start today's show, I just wanted to share why I love public radio. Programs like Colorado Edition share such a diverse spread of stories. Listeners who tune in to KUNC can discover anything from the COVID vaccine distribution plan to the history of Christmas lights. For anything you might be feeling or going through in these uncertain times, KUNC has a story to match the moment. But these stories are only possible thanks to the financial support of listeners like you. All you have to do is go to KUNC.org and support your local public radio station. Thanks. And now here's the show.
2: This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we talk with the Public Health Director of Route County about new restrictions to keep rising COVID-19 cases in check.
3: Plus, we visit a newly opened museum that lets folks get up close to the things that go bump in the night.
4: You can see how the face is pulling back, and you wouldn't normally get that if you were just running away from it.
2: And we hear about how COVID research may help fight other diseases in the future.
4: All that
3: and more, coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman.
2: And I'm Erin O'Toole. While coronavirus cases appear to be declining across Colorado's front range, Route County has seen a surge in case numbers over the past few weeks. The county, which is home to a number of popular tourist destinations, is currently at level orange on the state's risk-level framework. To slow the spread of the virus, Route County implemented a new set of public health orders on Monday. We're joined now by Roberta Smith, Route County's Director of Public Health. Welcome to Colorado Edition. Thanks for having me. To start, can you just tell us how you saw the number of coronavirus cases change in Route County over the past two weeks?
1: We've actually been seeing an upward trend since the holidays. So, since Christmas and New Year's, just seeing the numbers go upwards was definitely a different trend than the rest of the state that was starting to decline.
2: Does this feel like it's linked to the holidays?
1: Yes, we do have evidence that some of the cases came from close contacts that were at New Year's Eve parties or Christmas parties. And we've definitely linked through our contact tracing that household spread and contact with other known contacts really is what's driving our numbers up.
2: We also know most Colorado counties with destination resorts are seeing an increase in case numbers. Is there a sense that tourists are coming in and, and bringing the virus into these communities?
1: Right. And we do have some test data that we can attribute to visitors in our community. But unfortunately, the the numbers that are driving our increase, those are residents that have tested positive. So we don't have many visitors that are testing for coronavirus per se within our county. So our numbers don't reflect visitors that potentially went home after their
2: vacation here in Rowe County and tested positive. On Monday, Route County Commissioners revised their public health orders to address the rising COVID-19 cases. Can you tell us about these new orders and what they're focused on?
1: We're looking at some of the modifications. I know the state has the dial framework with orange and red, and now I do think that that dial framework is going to be modified here shortly. But we wanted to work within that framework because it is kind of set in an already existing expectations that our county has. So we're currently in the orange level of the dial. But what we did is we pulled in some elements from the red portion of the dial to enhance our public health orders.
2: People, I think, always want to know, does this mean I cannot go out to a restaurant at all anymore? Like, what what are the practical effects of this?
1: Our restaurants are still operating at the orange level so they have the capacity limits of 25% in those orange levels. For our household gatherings and private and public gatherings, we took the element of the red dial that says only one household should be gathering. So since a lot of our data was tied to household spread and knowing that people were getting together and having parties, hopefully our community will understand that this isn't a good idea. And by putting that element in the public health order, maybe we can get our numbers to decrease in that area. A, a second area that we also added to our public health order was non-critical office spaces. So we were starting to see some companies that you know could have workers work from home, start having their employees coming back into the office. And looking at our level of cases, we wanted to make sure that, again, we were limiting
2: areas where people were congregating indoors. And how long are these kind of this modified orange level restrictions going to be in place?
1: Well, we hope we don't have to put them in place for too long. So the public health order technically goes through March 1st, but we do have um, buy-in from our commissioners, our board of health to keep looking at our data to see the effects that this has. And if our data does improve and we're seeing less cases within our community, then potentially we could revisit that public health order earlier than
2: March 1st. Kind of keeping an eye on the numbers. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's some
1: things also that we put into our public health order that are really More education focused and having restaurants understand that, you know, what we do see in our indoor dining capacity is People might be lingering in restaurants, so they're done with their meal, they sit and chat, and for that time period, a lot of times they have their masks off. So we're encouraging restaurants to educate their patrons that they should put on their masks when they're not actively eating or drinking. And I know Dr. Fauci with NIH has really talked about this in a lot of his messages that just putting the mask back on when you're not actively eating or drinking, that's that's actually going to help reduce some of the risk in that restaurant.
2: How has the community reacted, you know, both to the rising case numbers and these new health orders? Are you seeing people taking the precautions more seriously?
1: Well, I think we're all kind of in the same boat where, we're, where we've got our COVID fatigue. And, you know, it's it's hard whenever we have to change the, the rules, I guess, to, you know, make sure that people are modifying their behaviors and, you know, going back and forth to all these different levels can be confusing. So we do use our um, Board of Health forums as educational, but we also have a really good relationship with our Chamber of Commerce here in Rau County and with all of our towns within. Route County, that we're asking them to help educate everyone and be that positive deviant and set the example on what to be doing within our communities. And hopefully we will see an effect here soon with these new orders in place.
2: Roberta Smith is the Director of Public Health for Route County. Roberta, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks, Erin. I really appreciate it.
3: If you live in the U.S., you're more likely to be killed by the police than in any other Western nation. And in the Mountain West, it's even worse. But there are some bright spots. This week, we've been looking into fatal police encounters in the Mountain West. Today, we travel to one Western town where activists say the police are doing things right. Nate Hedgie has more.
5: Moses Lake is a hardscrabble, working class community out in the dry, flat scab lands of eastern Washington.
3: Uh, we have a lot of factories out here.
5: Johanna Bin wahid uh, is taking me on a tour downtown.
3: There's a lot of uh, airbag factories.
5: He's got uh, piercings, dreadlocks, and he's here. taking drags from a vape pen dangling here around here his neck. He's lived here in Moses Lake for most of his life. Like While the town board. is kind of diverse, and we have a lot of Latinos, lots of Latinos. Wahid is one of the only black people here. So he was pretty nervous when he helped organize a Black Lives Matter protest in Moses Lake this summer. He says there's a pretty conservative, white, racist element in town.
3: But it it came together nicely. We just had a nice march, snacks, we talked, shared stories. You know what I mean? It went really, really well, which surprised the hell out of me because I get called the N-word around here quite a lot.
5: (laughs) While Wahid and others were protesting police violence and systemic racism across the country, they weren't worried about the local cops.
3: Believe me you, I'm not a huge fan of the police and stuff like that, but the police here, I do like them.
5: That's because in Moses Lake, Wahid says the police don't feel like bad guys. They feel like your neighbors.
3: They're very wholesome, they're very localized, they're very human, they go to our gas stations, they go to our gyms, our stores. You see them on and off duty.
6: So it's really hard to hate them. Bailey, come here.
5: Wahid hollers out to his friend Bailey Sampson who's hanging out near a skate park. She runs over. Samson was one of the rally co-organizers, and she agrees with Wahid. Unlike in other towns, the cops here are pretty cool.
1: It's just that they're a part of our community, and I think like that's a big deal.
5: It is a big deal. Many cops don't live in the communities that they serve, especially in larger cities. Now, Moses Lake is relatively small. About 20,000 people live here. It has one of the lowest fatal encounter rates in the country, despite having rates of violent crime that are somewhat higher than the national average. Samson says the cops here know how to defuse situations.
1: Instead of just, I don't know, pulling your gun and being, you know, getting immediately defensive, they kind of want to de-escalate, not escalate the situation. And I think that's a big thing. I think a lot of cops could take a page out of their book at just how to handle people.
5: Over the past seven years, there have been two officer-involved fatalities in Moses Lake and the surrounding area. Both men were armed, one shot a police dog. Compare that to a similar city, such as Klamath Falls, Oregon, which had twice that number.
6: If you've got uh, uh, uses of force that are not justified, you gotta deal with it.
5: That's Kevin Fuhr. He's the police chief in Moses Lake. He says his department keeps close tabs on officers that use any force during an arrest. is a compact, middle-aged man with short gray hair wearing a mask. And we're speaking outside of the station as Canada geese migrate overhead. He's been a cop for about three decades. He says a good police department begins with hiring the right people and then training the heck out of them. His officers go through extensive annual training in everything from de-escalation techniques to recognizing any implicit biases they have. He says they also receive 40 hours of crisis intervention training every year. That's five times more than what's required by the state.
6: It's not just giving an officer a gun, a badge, and the, and the tools and the equipment to say, go arrest the bad guys. It's giving them the skills to be able to talk to people, be able to build a, the relationship. That you, when you show up and you're talking to somebody who's maybe a little amped up, you don't come in amped up. You come in and you try, to, you try to calm them down. He calls
5: it talking people into handcuffs. And that appears to work. Last year, the Moses Lake Police Department used force in less than 3% of its arrests. Whenever that number gets too high, fear will track the officers responsible and either work on retraining them or he'll fire them. He also has strict policies for when cops can use physical restraint or lethal force during an arrest. All of these are elements of a good police department in America. That's according to law enforcement expert Robin Engel.
1: What you see are strong policies, strong training, and strong supervision
5: and accountability mechanisms. Engel is a research director at the International Association of Chiefs of Police and a criminology professor at the University of Cincinnati. She says you need all these components working together to ensure that a department has low lethal force numbers. But here's the thing. Unlike other countries, law enforcement training in the U.S. is all over the board.
1: Agencies vary. Literally, agency by agency, in terms of not just the quantity of training but the quality of training,
5: and this can lead to departments like Moses Lake with low fatality numbers and others that dwarf the two deaths here. And that's prompted calls nationwide to defund the police, essentially moving money away from law enforcement budgets and into social and mental health care services instead. Moses Lake Police Chief Kevin Feuer
6: says he gets where activists are coming from. You look at these uses of force where where an officer has shown up because somebody is in a mental health crisis, and maybe that person in a mental health crisis has a weapon, and now you've just introduced it, a law enforcement officer that's carrying a gun that now is worried about somebody coming after them. Uh, we shouldn't be going to those.
5: That's why Fear has his officers respond to as many of these situations over the phone first. Because those are the situations that turn bad. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Nate Hedgie.
3: Our series, Elevated Risk, Police Violence in the Mountain West, wraps up tomorrow with a look at how police view the issue of brutality and violence. And you can find this and other stories in the series at KUNC.org.
2: You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC.
3: As the coronavirus pandemic continues to grip the world, scientists have focused on effective treatments and vaccine development. But as the number of people vaccinated goes up and the pandemic begins to wind down, it's likely that we'll see some of that research pivot towards treating other illnesses other than COVID-19. Dan Micah has been reporting on this for BizWest, and he's with us now. Hey, Dan. Hey, Henry. Scientific researchers, and this includes some right here in Colorado, spent much of the last year working to develop a COVID-19 vaccine. Let's start here, because the vaccine was developed using some older concepts that were repurposed for this modern problem. The two current vaccines that are approved for use in the United States,
7: they're different from the normal concept of what we would use for a vaccine. Most of the vaccines that we get used a weakened portion of that virus or that disease these COVID-19 shots used a type of technology called messenger RNA this has been bouncing around for the past couple of decades as a theory but never before has it really reached the the widespread use that it's going to be in now
3: I also know Dan that you talked with a scientist at the University of Colorado's Anschutz medical campus about how the development of these mRNA techniques could lead to breakthroughs in preventing and treating other diseases, including cancer and HIV. Tell us about what you heard from him.
7: This is a, a really exciting development for a lot of researchers who have been trying to figure out how to teach the body to fight viruses and to fight uh, illnesses by itself, by basically teaching it what it needs to attack instead of trying to treat the, the symptoms as they arise. It's almost like, uh, you know, the, the chicken and the egg argument. So with messenger RNA, in theory, you could create a vaccine that could learn to identify the HIV virus and learn to figure out how to identify different strains of that. And that could be the pathway for eradicating HIV and, by extension, AIDS. Uh, You could also, in theory, use it to teach the body to identify rogue cells that are producing tumors. That is, again, a, a possibility Unfortunately, there's a lot more pitfalls in in the medical research that I'm not qualified to talk about. And of course, medical research outside of a global pandemic and a global emergency will probably return to being relatively slow. But mRNA is a potential way to achieve those types of vaccines and to create not just treatments for those terrible illnesses, but for plenty of other illnesses. If we just figure out how to really just program the vaccine or that treatment to fight those specific diseases.
3: There's another project that you reported on that I'm curious about, and that's a project at CU's medical school called the COVIDome Project. They've been storing tissue samples from consenting patients in a database. Is there a sense that those samples will find their way into new research once the pandemic's sort of immediate danger is behind us?
7: I think what they're hoping to get out of that project is we could use some of that that tissue and medical researchers could use some of that tissue to figure out why certain people tested positive for COVID-19 but had little to no symptoms and shook it off just like they would a common cold, while some people, including some very healthy young people, went to the brink of death and suffered uh, long-term illnesses and have long-term symptoms. That would be a really good way to figure out how exactly this disease works. And that could lead to all sorts of other treatments for just the recurring symptoms that sufferers may have, but also might be useful in research for other types of coronaviruses that we've seen in the past that still manifest themselves in in SARS and MERS with uh, isolated outbreaks elsewhere in the world, or another future pandemic that might be in the coronavirus family that research and having that all that here is going to be particularly useful, especially as, you know, COVID is going to be really on our minds for the, for the foreseeable future. Even, you know, once we get to this point, hopefully sooner rather than later where we can all see each other again, we can go hang out at concerts and bars and, you know, we can talk to, to strangers without having social distancing and masks on and without that fear that research is still going to be there. And that research could be extremely useful in a multitude of ways down the road.
3: Dan Micah is a reporter for BizWest. You'll find a link to his article at our website, KUNC.org. Dan, thanks for breaking all this down for us. Anytime.
2: There's certainly a lot of scary things in the world right now. But at a new museum, the horrors inside are all about the art of distraction and letting folks get an up-close and personal look at the things that go bump
0: in the night. KUNC arts reporter Stacy Nick has the story. For more than 40 years, Distortions Unlimited co-owner Ed Edmonds has been designing monster masks and animatronic props for haunted houses, theme parks, movies, and TV. He's considered a leader in the industry and renowned by collectors for his detailed artwork, but he hasn't always seen himself the way others do. Edmonds remembers one time while giving a studio tour to an art class from a local high school.
8: And I'm talking kind of sheepishly like, well, you know, I actually consider this art. And the teacher interrupted me and goes, it's absolutely art.
0: That attitude wasn't always the case. In the 1980s, while a student at the University of Northern Colorado Edmonds entered one of his masks in an art show. It was called Human Error. One half was a normal human face, and the other was minus the skin to show the muscles and skull underneath. The show's jurors were not impressed. They wouldn't
8: even allow it to be shown. It's, not, it's a
0: stupid Halloween mask. That's not art. It's experiences like that that made Edmonds wonder what the response would be to his latest project, Distortion's Monster World the Greeley-based company headed south to the Denver Pavilions to create a horror-themed interactive pop-up exhibit.
8: I was really wondering if people would like it. You know, I was, are people going to want to come in and, you know, not be scared and not, you know, have that kind of haunted house experience and just look at these things like they would at an art museum?
0: So far, they seem to. Oh, my goodness. Featuring more than 25 of the company's designs, This is a place where people are encouraged to touch the art, as well as take photos interacting with the exhibits, like the Alien Queen from the classic horror film, Aliens. But it's more than just a place for a good selfie. It's a place to learn about the art's backstory, like that prop from Aliens.
9: Distortions was able to go back uh, in the 90s and do basically a molding of the original prop that was used on the film.
0: Nate Webb is co-owner of Blazing Illuminations. The Loveland-based production company collaborated with Distortions Unlimited to create the exhibition.
9: And to be able to come up and see these things as they were on set, uh, it's one of a kind. You don't get this anywhere.
0: Plackards tell the stories and the process behind each of the hand-sculpted works, like the animatronic gargoyle purchased during the company's fledgling years by actor Dick Van Dyke, who is known for his elaborate Halloween parties. The piece was originally part animatronic and part human-powered. An actor would sit in the suit, lying in wait.
9: So in that part where he started screaming, he would have jumped off the platform and come run at you. So,
0: <laughs> But here, he stays safely on his pedestal so you can see the detail of his snarling teeth and admire his wingspan.
4: A lot of people are afraid of these things more than they are able
0: to appreciate it. Nate's wife, Heidi, is the co-owner of Blazon Illuminations. She says, taking these works out of the dark haunted houses where they traditionally live and putting them into a museum-like setting puts a whole new spotlight on them.
4: We have a Frankenstein in the back that normally with Frankenstein, you're like tearing off the other direction. But this guy, if you're looking at him, you're seeing the sculpt of his neck and the way that the tenons and all of the muscles are working and how he's straining. And you can see the jaw. You can see how the face is pulling back. And you wouldn't normally get that if you were just running away from it.
0: It may not be the Mona Lisa, but she's right. There's something really beautiful when you look closely at the intricate work of each piece like the surprisingly lifelike decapitated head from rocker alice cooper's brutal planet tour monster world features several props commissioned from distortions for the show including the original guillotine
4: you can actually put your head in there it's been adapted so nothing's gonna hurt you everything's safe the blade's been changed out for a padded blade
0: it's kind of fun for ed edmonds the fun is in finally getting to actually see people enjoying his art It's something he's been working towards over the past few years, with projects like the Travel Channel series Making Monsters, as well as Monster Day, the annual festival in Greeley that celebrates all things monstrous.
8: All I did for 30 years was just... We make it and ship it out and we never saw the people that get it, we never saw the people that bought it, and then suddenly, with the internet and the TV show, it is really a kick in the pants from an artistic standpoint to see how people respond.
0: While the subjects in Monster World are designed to be scary, the museum itself really isn't. In addition to being well-lit, all the animatronic exhibits feature push-button activation so visitors control whether they want the Wolfman to jump out and howl or not. They also use ultraviolet light to keep things sanitized without harming the art. Again, Nate Webb.
9: We wanted people to come here, escape from the normal reality, the day-to-day, all the bombardment of everything that's happening, escape into this new world that we've created that allows people to just check into a different reality and at least spend an hour outside of the horror of the real world. (laughs)
0: Because right now, the world is scary enough. Stacy Nick, KUNC, Denver.
2: You can find out more about Distortion's monster world and see photos of some of the exhibits at kunc.org.
3: That's our show for today. On the next Colorado Edition, we get a closer look at what one sports writer has called the dumbest trade in Colorado sports history. I'm Henry Zimmerman.
2: And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.